I'm Chris Dyson, and you're listening to the 1620 Lounge. You know, one of the things that I was always excited about with JP was I'd known him since I was a little kid and I knew him from a guy who just showed up one night at my Pleasant Valley Little League game. And that was the first I'd met him. He was driving for us at Lime Rock that weekend and I got to know him and he was one of the friendliest, warmest guys ever. And he was great to Emily which I think is an essential for any driver on the team. Uh, one of our true favorites. And he was fantastic with my sister and he was just an incredible guy. But then when he put the helmet on, man, could that guy wheel. And, you know, when you start to learn the backstory of, you know, he and his father and just, you know, getting waylaid in his dad's misdoings, but at the same time, loving his dad enough to not turn on him you know, it's it's almost it's it's beyond operatic. This is a guy who was the youngest ever IMSA champion, and beat Rick Mears head to head in the Michigan 500 at the peak of Mears' powers. Had everything going from a talent perspective, and just got sidetracked, but yet came back, and it was as if he'd never been away. And he did a couple races with us in '89, and then came back and joined us in the 962 a few times. He was a guy that people still called because he was a quiet assassin. And he and Butch as a pairing was just fantastic to watch. One of the things that I remember the most about JP was a race that he didn't even do for us down at Sebring in 1993. Yeah, It was just hoisting rain down. Butch, you may have had the misfortune of actually having to drive in that weather that day. I think our own Andy Wallace won that race. Andy would tell us for the second time in a row but jp took two laps out of the toyotas in the rain in a single stint think about that it's mind-blowing and and just some of the stuff he did in the limited time with us it was special so i don't really mind that we've diverted ourselves into a jp tribute at this point because what what more can you say uh, about the man do you, do you think the stuff that happened with his dad and stuff, do you think that maybe overshadowed his career a little bit? Do you think when people think of him, instead of thinking about his pure talent, they think about his dad and all the other stuff, or, or, or not so much? I, I think only for people who who didn't really know him or or even see him drive, maybe. If you're just looking at the kind of, you know, the, the bullet points, that, that that might do that. But I think, like, like Chris, like, to your point, like where, you know, when he came back, you know, he was welcomed so, so much was, was because just he was such a, a quiet, humble person, you know, and he, and, you know, the, the whole thing with his dad, you know, it, it was a real, you know, there's, the, there's a lot of like dynamics going on with that, you know, and, and John never made an excuse for it, you know, I think like, like a lot of us, you know, have excuses for him, because I think, you know, he, he was, he was led into this stuff. But John would never say that, you know, John would never say like, you know, or pity himself or, or, or try to make, you know, any, any story out of it. You know, it, it, for him, it was, he, he did it and he, and he paid the price for it, you know, and, 
And that, that's just kind of how, how he always was. You know, if something went wrong with the car, you know, he'd blame himself for it. You know, if, if, uh, if it would go off, you know, he would like, take full responsibility for it, even when it wasn't his fault. He, he, he was just that kind of guy. He, he, was, he was someone that you couldn't help but, but uh, love being with. And, he, you know, and Chris, as he said, you know, there was that one year, every time I drove with him, if we drove together, we won. And, uh, and that was actually after his crash at Indy, where he broke, uh, I think, broke one leg. And I, I remember at, at, at Las Vegas, that was, I, I think it was his first race back from that. And, and John started the race. And, and for some reason, they decided that we had to, that we were going to, the cars were all going to be parked for the pre-grid on the racetrack. And they made all of us drivers walk across the, the long lawn there. And, and, and poor John, you know, you know was, was you know, almost doubled over with, in pain getting out there. And they wouldn't let us take a golf cart out or anything. Um, but he, and he still did, did the job. You know, he, he, he was an incredible guy, or he is, is an incredible guy. His, his intensity as a competitor, he's such a wonderful personality. But I'll tell you what, when he was locked in, man, it was, it was a little bit scary. I can remember being at Daytona the first year he drove with us. He never left the pit area. Mm. And, and I mean, like, all night long. He may have left just to go and get a bite to eat. But even when it wasn't his stint, I, I think he was so fired up and so competitive that he never wanted to leave the pits. And when, he, when it was time to go, he was there. And it was just his, his, his car control in the rain was just mind-blowing. And, uh, you know, it was it was just one of these things where, you know, this is a guy who, after beating Rick Mears for the 1990 or the 1983 Michigan 500, comes back and wins a, an Indy race. I think 15 years later, he won an IRL race, uh, one of the longest gaps I right. think between wins. So that, to me, just underlines the talent. Uh, and he's doing great now. You know, he's he's been an incredible perseverance story. He's had the misfortune of being sidelined for the most of the last 20 years with this uh, with this Hutchinson's sy syndrome. And a lot of the racing community has reached out to try to support him. And, and to me, that that speaks a lot about his his career arc and how the the, the paddock holds him in such high affection. I mean, when you can get all-time sports legends like Brian Redman and David Hobbs and anybody who's after them stands up and says this guy was the tops. To me, that that guy, to answer your question, overshadows any of the complications that he ended up in because of his father's actions. This is better than James would be, probably. We haven't, <laughs> we haven't gone there yet, by the way, Butch. We haven't gone there with the Weaver po well, uh, podcast I, yet. I mean... Once you do that, I mean, everything else is going to be downhill, right? <laughs> I think James would agree. <laughs> it's like full-time college here. Uh, so, Butcher, are yeah. you plugged back in? I am. Yeah, I think I'm back on back online. Okay. So, Butch, Guy and I have spoken a lot about how racing has changed between the analog and internet eras. And, you know, how this has affected presentation and interest in the sport. Back in the days before social media had everyone turned on 24-7, there would be lulls in the schedule. And I always personally thought that this was a good thing because the anticipation would build for events as they actually happened. 
and the way events came up on the calendar was different. We talk a lot about the bygone days of the Camel GT, mainly because of the crowds the series attracted and how well it was funded and promoted and how this drove the mystique around the events and the drivers and the teams that were involved. Even during the time, and more so looking at it in the rearview mirror, it felt like a big deal to go to one of those IMSA events because they were really happenings. Just as CART became and really akin to what NASCAR would become in the latter 90s. But drivers weren't really engaged back then. To see them, fans had to make an effort to get to the track or to go to an appearance that the drivers made. And this meant that people had to make a real investment of their time and resources to follow the sport. Now it's more accessible than ever. There's so much video and real-time information that it's overload. Yet the interest in the sport has seemingly waned, and this seems paradoxical. You know, never has the sport had so many media channels to connect and drive interest. But the manufacturer money that we saw and the sheer competitiveness that drove the investment in the sport has dropped off. We've also talked here a lot about the permanent youth movement and how drivers are becoming ever younger. Do you think that the sport is getting younger? And, and that, that has that cost it mystique? Or is it because the message creators and the image shapers just aren't there uh, promoting the sport like they once did? And do you ever wonder what big-time IMSA would have been like with all these media channels? Or is that just an impossible situation? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I completely get what you say, and, and I, I think I'm, I'm on board with it. Where I think there was a lot to be said for anticipation, uh, you know, where, you, you know, you, like you, you waited for your autosport to come in or you're, you're, you're on track over here, you know, like you waited for a print magazine to come and that was like your latest news that you could get, you know, uh, and it was two weeks out of date. No, at least like the on track would be like uh, Autosport is like, you know, two or three days out of date. That's by the time you read it. But, um, you know, I, I think there is something to having to wait for something or, you know, and not having constant access to it kind of like always being a little bit out of reach maybe makes you want it more. Um, you know, and also just like the fact that there were so, so fewer choices of, of entertainment back back in those days as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it, if the old days would be any any better than the new days, you know, if it, if it were, if they happen now, you know, it, it's, I, I think it's just kind of, you know, it might just be part of the, of, of the way it is now that, that's, uh, you know, that, that, that everyone, like, they, they, even though the crowds actually have, have been good, the, the IMSA races I've been to lately have, have had great crowds. Uh, like, like Sebring was, was huge, but, you know, even like, like the Glen uh, last year, which sometimes for the six hour, you know, 20 years ago would, would be struggling for, for crowd size. And there was actually a, a really healthy crowd there. Uh, Lime Rock as well. Um, but, uh, but, but, but still, it, it's a, uh, yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean, and I, I'm not really sure the answer, but I, I you know, I, I suppose the, the biggest thing, I'm, I'm glad I, I lived when I, when I did, and, uh, and I didn't have quite so much access, because I think that there is, you, you can build up more of a myth when you don't know, you know, about every single detail about a person, you know, like, I, 
I, I, I was never going to, to find out what Al, Al Holbert's, you know, pet bird was called or something, you know, but, but, but now I'm, I'm sure there's a webpage you can go on to that will, that will tell you every detail about every driver uh, out there. But you know, actually, and, and you guys, you guys are still living it. So you, you have a much better perspective, I think, on, 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 on the difference in, uh, in engagement and all that than, uh, than, than the way it used to be. Well, the news now, if you like on the websites, it's more tabloidy, isn't it? It's more disposable. So, you know, whether it be autosport or on track, you know, you'd get something and you read an article and it has some meaning and, and you'd really absorb it and take it on board. Whereas now you kind of you kind of read something and within a day or two, you kind of forgotten about it. It's kind of old news and it's just kind of it's just been churning all the time. And some of it's fake news and some of it's some of it is credible. Um, but. You know, I think we're all quite interested because as generation, we kind of straddled both sides of it. You kind of got, you know, we, we were involved with the, you know, the kind of old school, if you like, where, you know, you know where I, I think it was a great time because you raced, you know, you you, you look forward to the next event. Um, and then now also we've got the, the social media. You've got to be you've got to be good with social media because that's what the brands and the OEMs want you to be. And, and you've got to you feel like you've got to do something to kind of be, you know, up to date, up to up to speed with with current um, trends and stuff. So, it, it but it, it I definitely feel privileged that we were able to do, you know, to 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 do um, to race an era before all of that. And 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 the young the young kids now won't ever realise that because it will it will ever exist again. Um, but um, that's an interesting thing. I mean, we we've talked about it quite a lot about the social media aspect of stuff and. And now you see a lot of iRacing and, and um, simulator racing. And, and I know it's kind of probably brought to a forefront because of this coronavirus. So it, it's kind of filled the void. And it's, it's done it pretty well, to be fair. But, um, but it, you know, it, it, it's just crazy how serious people have taken it. And, you know, we talked about some of the NASCAR stuff, like with um, Kyle Larson and all the stuff that's gone on with him and stuff. And it, it's just a, a different, a different um, yeah, just a different time, isn't it? Different time. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I, I, I actually, I was, I was, I just had a, a conversation, a quick conversation with uh, an engineer, a, a current engineer, and he said that uh, he spent four hours preparing for one of these uh, uh, iRacing things. You know, just like going over all the all the setup and strategy. You know, it, it, it's a. Uh, it, I mean, I, I suppose part of that is just being complete anoraks. You know, they they they're so desperate to do anything. You know, they they have to, you know, they have to latch on to it. But. Uh, but yeah, it, it's uh, it, it's yeah, it's, it's it's another one of the things that's I, I, I'm I'm like at least one generation kind of uh, beyond the understanding of it. Yeah, it's hard for me to comprehend. You know, having grown up in the '80s, that race drivers now are getting death threats from strangers on social media about their behaviors and actions in a video game race. And yeah. it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of one of these things where, how did we get here? How is, how has it become this? And I think obviously there's, it's forgivable because it's lockdown mania. And I think people are ready to burst out, but guy and I've talked about, you know, would Senna be as intriguing if he was on Instagram? Uh, Probably not. Al Holbert's pet bird. Uh, exactly <laughs> right, Butch. You know, but in the, in the, in a weird way, the characters from back then, you know, we were surrounded by them on our race team, but 
the characters were larger than life. And, and I don't know if that was just because we weren't together all the time or if it was just because people were less afraid. There wasn't going to be a, you know, a corporate uh, autopsy performed if someone said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing. But there was a freedom. And I think that freedom came with the experience and the gravity of being a veteran competitor as opposed to the current environment, which is really youth dominated. And you could kind of see the switch go off in sort of the mid to late 2000s, where as the corporate money was starting to leave, costs had to be reduced. So those colorful figures that illuminated the grids, who excited fans who were of a certain age, uh, they were replaced with, I guess for, for better or for worse, with more corporate automaton drivers kind of reciting scripts and that just hasn't stuck as much and what amazes me is just how that hasn't been factored in by anyone that 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 was actually the the intrigue that brought people in there's no right answer to it it's just it's one of the topics we're continuously exploring here on the show um you know the the perpetual engagement uh, you, you know you're either interesting or you aren't and you know for guy and i we i mean i got on twitter so i could I could engage in bashing with uh, Andy Merrick and and Guy. It was for no other reason. <laughs> but you, you get all these guys, these bloggers and these YouTuber guys, and 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 they do stuff on blogs on on cars, and they know nothing about cars, but they've got millions of followers. But they actually don't know what they're talking about. But because they're kind of entertaining and whatever, you know, whatever else. But but it, it, it again, it, it's it's almost like um, people are so content hungry, content thirsty. But actually, the content that's been put out is actually pretty, pretty poor. And I think it goes back to, again, about the media stuff. It's about, you know, that, that quality journalism that you would have got, you know, the good journalists that we had back in the day. Like now, you know, anybody can just put a story up on, on the Internet and, you know, whether, whether, it's, whether it's true or, true or not. So, um, yeah, it has, it has changed a lot, but it is the way things are going. And we were just talking about our kids and stuff and you know, that now they, you know, they're playing video games and they're saying about how concerts now are going to be streamed through like Fortnite. They're going to actually have concerts through Fortnite because that's where the audience is. So things are changing and, and, and you, you've got to, you kind of got to go with it, but um, whether it's, whether it's for the, for the good of the, of the sport, it's, it's hard to say. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I, I, when I hear myself, I think I'm probably, I'm, I'm just barking at the moon, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, an old man, you know, just yelling, but, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's just totally different. You know, like one of the things is like, you know, when you did get your autosport, you know, that was pretty much your, your week's worth of news. Right. So you read it cover to cover, you know, and, and like you, you, you read about all these different levels of racing that, uh, you know, that you didn't even really have a connection with, but just because like, like that, that's kind of like what you, you fed on. And and now there's so much content for any small niche of the sport that you maybe like you, that you don't really branch out as much, or may, yeah. maybe you know maybe that that's a, that's something that's happening is that people have become like hyper, kind of hyper focused on their one aspect as opposed to just me being you know a fan of the sport at, at whole. Butch, you and I have talked about it before, and you've lived through so many series name changes and formulas. Uh, the topic comes up of sanctioning bodies constantly changing things and obsoleting formulas altogether. 
you live right in the heart of sprint car country in central Pennsylvania. The cars racing on those great tracks every week are still essentially the same kind of cars that were racing 25 years ago. And they really aren't that far away from what was racing 50 years ago. Uh, likewise with the Trans Am where I'm racing now, other than increased horsepower and maybe a little bit more aero, my Mustang isn't too altogether different than the one you raced in the series nearly 20 years ago with Tom Gloy. The most successful periods of racing worldwide happen when the series knows what it is and delivers consistency to fans and paddocks. But when you look at the arc of top category sports car racing, it's not unkind to call it schizophrenic. You know, one minute in the 90s, it was full ground effect, unlimited horsepower. Then it was WSC open cockpit cars, flat bottoms. Then we had the dreadful Daytona prototypes. And then in ALMS, we went through three or four rule sets in 10 years. You managed to win in just about any formula we ran. But, and, and truthfully, for a lot of the time during that period, we were following the lead of the ACO and Lamont changing its rules like fall fashion. So that created some of the discord. But other series, including CART and IndyCar, really weren't much different. Now you add in the BOP brigade and the everyone deserves a trophy mentality. You put that in a blender. It's, it, it can make for a pretty hard sell to try to explain it. What is it about sports car racing that makes constant upheaval a feature? You know, and was it any accident that we were able to win races across four different series names over a five-year period running the same car? Is IMSA now looking at a more stable platform as something it needs to guarantee longer term success? Because this is something that we live through. We live through a lot of these ups and downs and very often people forget the most basic thing, which is keep it simple. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, no, I, I, but I, I think you're right. The, uh, I think it often gets forgotten that by changing the rules and obligating everyone to buy a new car, that you, you've just, you know, you, you've just kind of decimated the, the budgets of, uh, that, that each, each team is trying to, to come to. And, you know, I, I suppose, I suppose on, on the one side, if, if, a, if a category has become stale, you know, may, maybe changing the, the rule set and bringing new cars in might, you know, might generate enough interest that, that people want to come in and new money will want to come in. But I think more often than not, the, the effect is that, that, that you've just, you know, probably dropped a few cars out or a few teams out of, 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 of the sport for the next time. I mean, I, I remember with the, the WSCs, when, what year would that be? Probably '97 or '98, when uh, when they, they decided to go with uh, the, the following year, they went with the, the ACO rules, you know, with a single roll hoop and and allowing uh, some tunnels. That uh, you know that you know the year before we had like probably 20 cars on the grid for an IMSA race, and then the following year it, it was like four or five. You know, it, it's a uh, and, 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 and I, I, you know, I, I don't know why at, at, at any point they decide that, that they need to, to make such a dr drastic rule change like that. I mean, 
That's a, actually, and God, you're a lot closer to this. Maybe you can explain to me a little bit. But I always thought the whole idea with GT3 was that through BOP, that everything, everything can be balanced. And so presumably, if you buy a car this year, that next year, you should be able to still have that car. And, and through BOP, they should be able to, to balance everything. And, and, and presumably the year after that. I mean, if you, if you just keep kind of a constant performance level, that, that you should be able to do that. But that's not the case. Every, every year, uh, you know, everyone has to, to buy the latest Evo kit. Uh, uh, where, where it seems like the, the BOPs should be negating the Evo, Evo kit so that it's, it's just the, you know, the, the same level of performance each time. Like, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm missing with that. I think it's, I think with the, with the manufacturers, it goes through their model cycles. So they normally work, I think, on three to four years. And then as, for example, take Bentley, you know, once they went with the Gen 1 car, you know, they... They wanted to. They they're in the business of selling selling more GT you know, GT three cars. So when they were doing a G, uh, Gen two car, they've got to make they've got to come out with something that is better, shinier, performs better in order to to, to sell the new model car. So um, I don't think it's necessary from a BOP point of view that they 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 make the car any slower. They just try and make it maybe you know to try and advertise that it's an easier car to drive or whatever else. At the end of the day. They still need to sell cars. The manufacturers need to sell cars. That's why they're in there because it's customer racing. So, um, but yeah, in theory, you know. But then, you know, if, if you've got a guy that's got like a, you know, a car that's five years old, six years old even, and he, he's potentially winning races, that also doesn't look good because, you know, is it the manufacturers are there as a business? So I guess from their point of view, there's got to be some kind of discrepancy between, you know, the, the more modern cars and the older cars. But yeah, in theory. In theory, you should be able to build a run, you know, run an older car and be, be competitive. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I mean, GT3 is, is it's a great category, but it's it's like anything. It's a bit like with IMSA, you know, I, I'm just, I can't understand now how IMSA has become so expensive. You know, what the budgets that I've been, you know, heard about in the last couple of years in IMSA, I, I don't see where those, where, the, where those budgets have come from because fundamentally the racing's the same. Uh, you know, uh, it's just it's just uh, in the, when they say that GT GT uh, D budget is the same as what a prototype budget was, you know, five years ago, six years ago, it just doesn't compute. You know, I think that that that's that's the biggest problem for the grid is that the, the economy is 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 always is always up and down and it, and and it has its tough times, but the racing budgets don't seem to be getting any cheaper or any more controlled. I think that that's that's the big problem is that you get this kind of it builds it builds it builds, then it goes pop, and then and then they have a reset. And then it builds, it builds, it builds. It's a bit like we go back to GT3. It's supposed to be, you know, a, a cost cap formula, relatively affordable. But, you know, people do more testing. They find ways to spend more money. It builds, it builds, it builds. And, and then people leave. And then everyone's like, well, you know, it's like, who's the last, who's the last guy at the party? And everyone's left. Um, so and I, but, that, but that happens in all, all formulas, doesn't it? You know, they have it in DTM. You know, it gets, they have this war between manufacturers and they all spend more money. And then eventually they all drop away and suddenly there's no one there.
But but just we, we obviously talked we touched on John Paul. I mean, obviously you had a great relationship as a teammate with him. But I mean, obviously, you know, we need to talk about James Weaver. I mean, obviously you drove with Andy as well. But I mean, Weaver's a big part of you you two together, like you know, thick as thieves. You know, you've had a lot of success together and a great relationship. And um, I, I think when 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 people think of James, they think of you, and, and vice versa. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it was like working with James, both on and off track. Right. Um... The, the, the first thing you have to know about James is that you, you could absolutely never, ever, ever get into any kind of, um, you know, word fight, you know, like, 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 a, like a wordplay game or something with him, because he will absolutely cut you up and, and, and just like leave you shriveling and, and whimpering in, in the corner at, at, by the end of it. You know, so it, I, I learned pretty early on not to not to like. Come, come at him directly with a you know with a smart ass comment unless I was like really ready to back it up with <laughs> with, okay. with some big cannons. Uh, no, but I, I mean actually, you know I, I touched on earlier the, the the first race I did at Daytona. You know I I showed up and I, I think the first thing that James said to me was, "All right, where, where are we having beer tonight?" You know, and and it was it was just that atmosphere where where he uh, you know he he was able to you know obviously be incredibly fast and professional in, in the car. But he, he didn't, you know, carry that on, uh, or that like, it, it wasn't like a lot of people tend to be super intense and and and, and applying pressure at all times. You know, he he, he was yeah. able to. You know, yeah. you know, I, I I came into it. I'd never driven a prototype uh, before driving for GRT. Uh, you know, I I just driven GT cars, and uh, so there was a lot that I, I had to learn. And James was like really patient with me, and and and. You know, would sit down with me and, and, and talk and then look on the, the data and, and figure out where where I was missing, and you know never in a in an exasperated way you know in, of, of of how I was holding him back you know but but he really drugged me up, uh, drugged my level up so so that we could you know so I could try to help him a little bit, uh, and uh, you know and 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 I think I, I think like you know one of the things that I recognized early on was just how how great he was at at, at the setup. Actually, I remember uh, Pat, like probably the first race I, I did, you know, Pat told me uh, that he's like the princess in the pea, you know, or, or if you can, like, you know, take a pound of tire pressure out and, and he could come back in and, and, and tell you exactly what you did. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always appreciate that about James. And so, you know, quite often, James would, would have the car like for the test sessions. James would have the car for the whole day, you know, or most of the day. Um, and just because he was so good at, on the technical side and, you know, and, and at the, at the end of the day, you know, I would have this, this nice card kind of gift wrapped for me and I, I would get the, the, the fruits of his labor and be able to, to yeah. take a car you know, around the track that was perfectly set up. So it was, uh, it, it was a, a, just a perfect situation for me. Cause I was able to, you know, learn from someone who was, uh, it was an open book, you know, like, I, I think, I think that's why James liked uh, Dyson racing so much was that, you know, Rob and Pat were always very adamant that, that you know, that this wasn't uh, a, a, a job where your first job is to beat your teammate. You know, the first job is to win for the team, mm -hmm. which is not the case in a lot of other places, as, 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 you, as you well know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, I, I, you know, J James helped me and, and, and wouldn't throw me under the bus when I, when I did something wrong. You know, uh, uh, well, maybe once or twice, but, uh, but I deserved it. Brilliant. Actually, I remember one time I, uh, I completely screwed up somewhere. I can't, I can't, I'm, 
I'm blanking on on which one of my screw ups this was, but where I, I just done something stupid and you know and and put the car in the tires and it came back in and you know Rob was there and you know like you know Rob didn't necessarily like it whenever you, you you're spending his money for him with uh, with crash damage, but James was was just like over the top like what a silly thing how in the world could you have done that and after about 10 minutes of it you know like like, like rob started to feel sorry for me so like by the by the end of it you know like rob, rob had almost forgotten that i'd done you know i i crashed the car and it, was, it was just kind of coming to my aid and and the and, and, and james claims that that's what his, his goal was all along but i'm not exactly sure about that but uh <laughs> but uh no it, it, it was a good time but you kind of complimented each other really well because like you said i mean um you know, J- I know James did spend a lot of time in the car because you know he was obviously very good with the setup. And and for you to jump in, and you know, often with like five laps at the end or whatever, but you'd always jump in. And Chris, you know, obviously backed me up on this. So you'd jump in and, and go as quick, if not quicker, than James. You know, it, it it says a lot about your ability to to just be able to jump in and and not have you know because a lot of drivers need a lot of time to you know need half a day, and lots of laps to get up to speed, but to kind of jump in and find the limit of the car and 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 get on the pace straight away. But also, probably, you know, I'm sure if James was on the call as well, he'd, he'd sort of say, you know, I, I know that Butch could do that because I'm sure if it, if he didn't have the confidence in you, he'd be wanting to get you in the car to get you up to speed. But he probably knew that you didn't need the lap. So it, it's one of those partnerships where you kind of like, you play to each other's strengths, don't you? And say, well, you know, I know he's good at this. And I think all good partnerships, it's a bit like team sports. You're only as good as the people you're working with. And, and it's known, known where they're good and where they're weak. And where they're weak, you support them, and where they're good, you, you kind of let them do you know do the thing. And obviously, that's what you guys had, so that's why it was successful. Yeah, it was good. Um, I, I will say though that uh, actually, I, I just remember another time that he really he really threw me under the bus was when uh, we were at Sebring, you know, and you know we stay in these condominiums uh, in, in Sebring, and I think it was like, like me, James, and Andy were in one condo, and Elliot, John Paul. And I think, and Rob, I think we're in another one. Uh, and, and Rob had business and like, and got in like on the Tuesday night. And, and there's like, like one of those days, like we had had the day off. So we're all just like in one of the condos having a beer, you know, like we're two beers. And so there's like five or six of us around a table and we all have, you know, two beers, maybe three uh, empties <laughs> on, on the table. And Rob walks in and so oh, everyone gets up. Oh, hi, Rob. And James just pushed every one of those beers in front of me. <laughs> and 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 I could, I could see Rob, you know, like, hey boys, how you doing? Good to see you. And, he, and his eyes kind of went over the table and, 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 and looked at me, looked at the table, looked at me, and I was like, oh god. And and and, and James like really hemmed it up as well, like where, where he's talking about how, you know, it's it's it's, a, it's important for people to be able to to you know moderate their their liquor and, and such. But, but uh, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, in a lot of ways, Butch, you were the optimal teammate for James because he could always trust that you were going to go out and be fast and that you were going to be racing for the win and that you didn't need any time. And most importantly, that you weren't anxiously sitting there chomping at the bit when he was out there all day in the car. Uh, guy, guy, guy has a good feeling for that. Because, yeah, he taught you well. Uh, James I, taught you very well. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I'm I'm not I'm not an, a, um, 
and as avid reader as Butch, because Butch, you know, I, I mean, I remember when, when I first started, it, 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 a little bit with the Bentley thing, I got a taste of it, but definitely when I joined DRT, I, you know, you walk, you sort of walk to the pit lane and like Butch is like, I'm like, Butch, where's your helmet? You know, why are you in your overalls? He's like, he's just got like a couple of newspapers and magazines and stuff under his arm. And I'm like, are you not driving? He's like, nah, nah. And he, and he basically sit down, he's got his shorts on and he's kind of like, you know, he's like Hawaiian shirt, gets the papers out and just starts like reading them like, yeah, this this dude's really casual. It's like it's like on a holiday. <laughs> pounding round and pounding round, and I'm like, I'm sort of like, you know, I'm I'm sort of sat. Chris is pounding round, and I'm watching, <laughs> thinking, well, you know, he's he's obviously got the right idea. But that that became a theme, and uh, you know, soon realised that that's that's the way it worked. But it, as I said, it, it obviously went pretty well. <laughs> There's a lot of James stories. We look forward to getting him on the show. Um, you know, but you're still connected with him, sir. Um, you're now an ambassador for Michelin at all of the IMSA events or a lot of the IMSA events. And what's cool about that program, based on what you told me, is that Michelin treats every event as a rally and reward for valued Michigan, valued Michelin team members. Tell us a little bit about the program and how a lot of those people react to their first experience at the races. Do you think that that's a model program for spurring interest in racing? You know, have you have you seen any other programs like it in your career? And is it the is it the sort of thing that created a lot of excitement in the past and was done by more companies? Uh, uh, actually, I, I haven't seen it like this. Um, Michelin does a fantastic job of really trying to you know get, have the activation at the track, uh, where as you said, for for each race week, uh, their their distributors uh, will. will you know, bring out uh, their their best customers, or it'll, it'll be like a, maybe a reward for meeting their quota uh, or exceeding their quota for whatever period. And uh, you know, and quite often this will be the first car race that any of them had been to. And uh, you know, and, and, and sports car racing can be a bit of a challenge. So that's kind of my job is just to explain sports car racing to people. You know, explain why there are multiple, you know, different looking cars on the racetrack and 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 all, and all of that. But uh, you know, and 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 you know, as, as you know, the, the, one of the great things about sports car racing is the access that you have. You know, so, you know, walking through the paddock and, you know, we'll have an arrangement with the Corvette team where, where, where the, you know, they'll be able to you know, look in and, and touch the car and, uh, you know, with the Ford or, or whoever it is. And, uh, and the level of excitement that you see, you know, and especially like the, you know, sometimes they'll be kind of pensive in the beginning, like kind of like, you know, what am I doing here? But by the end, it, you know, you've created a complete fan. You know, the, the number of times where people have said, you know, because quite often uh, they'll, they'll be, they'll actually fly uh, these people in. And, uh, you know, they'll, like at a race at, at, at uh, Wisconsin, at Elkhart Lake, uh, there'll be people from Missouri. And, uh, you know, they'll be looking at the schedule, trying to figure out what, what the closest track is to them that they can go to. You know, they're looking at Red Atlanta then. Um, you know, so it, it, it's great. I, I suppose the closest kind of that it might have ever been like this was with camel uh you know, but of course camel was just giving away uh tickets uh to, to you know buy pack of smokes and get a get a free ticket which certainly helps the the crowds you know that was part of the reason that the crowds were so huge was that camel quite a lot quite often packed the packed the place but mm. but i don't see anything wrong with that either you know it's, it's, as long as you're racing in front of uh bodies that's 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 the important thing yeah yeah do, do, has it changed? I, I've not been to a like a, an IMSA race in a long time. Is it is it changed a lot, Butch, or is it is it still got the same kind of vibe, or is it? 
You know, it, it actually, I, I have to say that they've done a very good job. The, uh, I, I think they've, I mean, the, the crowds have been impressive. Uh, like, like last year, especially, I, w- I went to a lot of the races and the crowds were very impressive. Um, the, the fan access, I think, is better than I've ever seen it. Um, you know, the, and the, the teams are, are very good. Like the, the drivers, I have to say, are probably a lot better than, than I ever was about, you know, being accessible. You know, like, 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 uh, so one of the actually things I've, I'm kind of embarrassed about with my career is I spent you know, quite a bit of it just in the in the trailer, you know, hiding and reading my newspaper, like you're saying, you know, and, and not necessarily being out more uh, more available. But, uh, you know, just like you know, talking to the, the people that are coming to the races, you know, they're, they're blown away by how, you know, they're able to walk through the paddock and they see someone in a driver's suit and they just like strike up a conversation with them. And, and, and what what an effect that has on them that they're able to, to do that. And that, and that really makes them a, a fan for, you know, beyond the, just that one race weekend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Butch, one of the things that I always liked was the fact that you had the racer X helmet design because <laughs> racer X and speed racer is kind of the villain. And I always thought of you as the, one of the good guys in the paddock. But w- when you put on the helmet, it, it gets kind of dark, and <laughs> we all love it. What, what is what is so special about putting the helmet on? And describe to some of the listeners about kind of the transformation that goes on when you put the race overalls on and you put your helmet on, and the freedom it gives you from the rest of the world. Because I think that that's something that. I'd like to get across a little bit is is just that dividing line between normal life and on track racing life, um, and what what kind of informed your decision to go for the Racer X helmet design? Right, well, okay, I'll, I'll do the helmet design first because uh, it's it's actually not what you might think. Um, when uh, growing up, you know, all I ever wanted to be was a race car driver you know and, and you know and some people had distinctive helmets you know like like mario andretti like you in- instantly recognized who that was with ronnie peterson you know so I, I really put a lot of of importance on on having a helmet but not only having a, uh, a helmet that i liked but um but keeping it you know so like like, like as, as i'm approaching 18 you know which is the minimum age to, to drive back then you know i'm, I'm really kind of like I need to come up with with my final solution for the rest of my life, you know, for for a design. And you know, I I I noticed that like some drivers, like I remember Alanzer Jr. was always having to change his his, paint, his helmet design because you know he's with Valvoline this time and and now he's with Marlboro, you know, so he would he would change his helmet design, you know, kind of based on that. And uh, and I didn't want to do that. And you know, in some some colors. You know, like you have a green helmet, and but you're driving a, you know, a, an orange car. It, it, it looks silly. Uh, you know, so I, I figured, okay, I, I always liked how Dan Gurney always had a black helmet, and I, I always thought that looked really cool. So I, I decided that I wanted black as my base. And then the second part of it was I didn't have, you know, I, I didn't have the skill or or the money to to paint a helmet. You know, I, I, I couldn't do it myself and I couldn't afford to pay someone to do it. So it pretty much had to be pinstriping. You know, I, I went to the art store and bought like a you know $5 roll of, of pinstriping. And 
and I just like, like sat in my room and like I, I was like trying to come up with different designs, and you know, I, I, I you know, there's only so many <laughs> ways that you can, can can do that, you know, and and everyone's already done a lot of like the like the, 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 the kind of simple stripes, so I I I finally came up with with that with the with the with the, with the cross like that. But you know the funny thing is, like everyone says, Racer X. I actually never watched Speed Racer. I, I, that, that, I was like, because my brother did. You know, that my brother's you know five years older than me, and he, you know, he knew all about. It, but I, I, I never got to watch it, so I didn't actually know anything about Racer X. Um, and actually, to to the uh, uh, as a sidebar, I'll, I'll just say, in my, my freshman year of of of, uh, of going to Penn State, my my freshman English class. There was like a thing where we broke up into groups and we had to like, you know, like uh, meet each other. Oh. And, and you know, I, I said that I, I, I race cars and this kid next, uh, next to me said, oh, really? Is, uh, what, do you have a monkey named Chim Chim? Is, is your mom's name? Oh, I can't remember what, what the, oh, was your mom's name Trixie? And I, I didn't have an idea what the hell he was talking about. And I was like, what the hell did he say about my mother? <laughs> so Anyway, so I, I I didn't really I didn't know the whole Racer X thing, but um, I've just yeah. I've just googled it because I, I didn't know what Racer X was, and it is absolutely your design, isn't it? It is, yeah. It it, it it's it's like I really I should probably be you know arrested for trademark infringement, but uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it, it, I I did it without without that knowledge. You know, it was it was just like sitting up in my room trying to come up with with something that I could actually do. With my limited uh, artistic skills, you know, for uh, for less than ten dollars. And then I'm sorry. Then you had the second part of the question, which was describe the feeling of getting suited up, putting your gloves on, putting your helmet on, where it takes you uh, as a person. You know uh, how you how you look at that moment before you get in the car. It, does a switch go off, or at what point do you feel like you're locked in because i think all different drivers have different kind of moments where you hit the switch and then you're fully focused on it yeah um yeah for, for me it's definitely you know uh uh two two completely different people you know it, it it's uh and i i i have a feeling i might be you know maybe worse than than some you know where uh like when, when i'm when i'm not actually in the car like it, it, like, like, like waiting for James to come in, you know, I, I, I would be nervous as hell, you know, it, it you know, especially like he, he's doing well. I think, Oh God, this, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ruin this. You know, he's, he's done such a good job and I'm going to uh, lose all this, but you know, the, the process of putting the helmet on, getting up on the wall and waiting for the car to come in, you know, it's based. Yeah. I, I, I finally like, like kind of in the you know, last 10 years of racing, like, like really like started to pay attention to it. It would be like, as soon as you see the car pop into view, you know, the, the headlights coming down pit lane, and like all of a sudden it would just be like, like a, 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 the different person would, would enter, you know, would, would enter the body and, and, and that, that would be it. I, I always feel like, like I, I see like these sports psychologists and, and, you know, and then you know, really successful people like able to have that, that person who's essentially the person with the helmet on the rest of the time. But I, I, I was never that like, I, 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 you know, I'm not a confident person out of the car. You know, I'm not, I'm not someone who's able to, you know, just kind of, you know, project 
you know, what I want onto, onto other people uh, at, at all times, you know, but, but in the race car, you know, you just absolutely grab whatever you can from the person and intimidate them as much as you can. And, and, uh, you know, it's just a completely different, different playing field. Is it, is it like that with you guys or am I completely just a basket case? I'll let Guy answer first. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think, I think you're right, but I think everybody has a different, a different way of looking at it, but I think, um, I think once you, yeah, when you get your helmet on and you, you kind of, your, your mindset changes, doesn't it? Like you can be completely chilled out, reading the paper, you know, having a laugh with the guys. And then suddenly, you know, you put your helmet on, you put your gloves on and that point you, your mind just changes. You, you go into like business mode at that point. And, and it's kind of different because for you and I, majority of the time we were kind of getting in second. So Chris, you know, been a really good starter. James would always like to start. So you know, you, you, for, for, for them, when you start the race, you have the whole build up, you're, you're in the car, you're strapped in, you have time to kind of feel all the controls and suss it all out. Whereas like for you and I, you literally stood there holding your seat or whatever else and, you, and, and you're getting in hot because the car comes in, you, you, you experience the race. You, like you said, if you're doing well, you, the pressure is the pressure's building and then the, you see the cars all shooting down pit lane and you've got to jump in and you've got to go from zero to, to you know, 200 miles an hour. And so you've got to be absolutely switched on as soon as you jump in that car. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, like you, like you naturally outside the car, you know, fairly, fairly laid back, not as laid back as you, but um, you do have to physically make that switch when you put the helmet on. Um, so yeah, I'm probably quite similar to you really. What about you, Chris? How, how do you, how was it for you? I mean, it's strange for me because the chaos relaxes me, you know, and, and the more pressure bound or, uh, kind of craziness that's going on in the background. I don't think this is an indictment of my father and my upbringing. It's probably more a compliment. But <laughs> I think from a very early stage in my athletic career, whether I was in playing baseball or whether I was going racing, when the uniform went on, it was like my competitive id came out and just, you know, I, I'm competitive in, in a lot of what I do, but racing takes that to an altogether different level for all of us. And, you know, James advised me when I was really young, he said, there's got to be some trigger for when you're 100% focused. And for me, I, I kind of got that point where it was my helmet or my gloves, but as soon as that was happening, it was game time. And it was like, for me, it was a very freeing, liberating experience because it was like the nerves kind of would go out of your body at that point, there was no anticipation. You had to be completely in the moment. And I think that's one of the things that attracts me to, to racing and to just a competitive sport is that nothing else exists but for that moment. And I think that's what keeps us coming back. And I think it's one of the things that we live for. It's the buzz that we live for. And there's no amount of tweeting or Facebook or, or any kind of Instagramming that can put that feeling into either words or images for others. And it's one of the things that I think I personally feel so privileged to have been able to do with you guys at a high level. And when you're able to pull it, pull something special out as Butch has so many times guy as you have, you know, at the top, top level, it's euphoric, but I think it's that feeling, whether it's a test day or whether it's a practice session, it's always there. And I think that that is something that people who are watching from the outside don't understand is that this is this is a way of life for us. And and that is the moment that you'll put everything else on earth aside to do 
And for me, it's it accesses a, a really kind of quieter part of my personality, even though it's chaos around me. So it's everybody goes racing, I think, for different reasons and everybody gets different experiences out of it. I think one of the things that we all share is just the love of the fight. And nobody loves the fight more than Butch. Guy, I know, you know, you're the same. We all just love to be out there in the mix, and that's what makes the sport so special. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you wouldn't, I think also it's the, it's the danger element of it. You would never get that on iRacing, would you? You never have that, you know, it's that respect. You know, you know, when you get in the car, you've got to respect for the car every single time because it can bite you at any point. And, um, you know, that, that, that thrill of controlling the car or trying to control the car at the, the speed is, is, what, is what we all love doing. Um, and as I, think, as I said, I think, I think we've been fortunate to drive some, some you know, mainly through, through Dyson Racing, drive some fantastic cars, you know, with good people in, in a great team. And, you know, I think we all look, you know, I know, I know Butch is the same, but you look back and you say, well, you know, we're incredibly lucky. We had a, had a great, a great era with, 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 you know, had some great times with good people. And that's all you can really ask for, isn't it? 